Many of you are sitting in this reason because your mom was like, please, the only thing I want for one year is for you to come to church with me. Please, God, come to church with me. And I know some of you guys are in here, maybe a neighbor or a friend invited you, or maybe somebody has been asking you for like 20 weeks, and you're finally like, fine, I'll go. And so maybe you're here this morning, but I want to let you know, no matter how you got here, you're not here by accident. You're here for a purpose. You're here for a reason. I genuinely believe that God wants to speak something to you this morning. So before we dive into anything that I want to say, let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for this incredible opportunity to be able to celebrate, God, your death and your resurrection. And God, that through that, we can experience freedom. God, we thank you for this glorious day history, God, when the stone was rolled away and all of death and all of our sin was left there in that grave. God, we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 I don't know if you know this, but today is the most important day of the year. Today is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And that is actually so significant because I don't know if you know this, but no God in history other than Jesus Christ has actually risen from the grave. Every God that people serve outside of Jesus Christ, let's call it Allah, let's call it Buddha, he's still a dead God. He did not rise from the grave. This is also the day that Jesus left all of our death, all of our hurt, all of our pain, all of our sorrow, he left it there in the grave. And to help illustrate this incredible day, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, many of you do have a smartphone. There's an app that you can download. It's called YouVersion, and you can read the Bible. It also reads the Bible to you. If you don't have any one of those, we're going to have it on the screen for you. But this is the story I think many people in here have heard it. We've heard the story of the prodigal son, but I want to kind of take a different spin on it this morning. There's three main characters in this story. There's obviously the prodigal, which is the youngest son. We've got the older brother, and then we've got the father. Now, many things that people actually get wrong about this story, they think the story is all about the prodigal son. When in reality, this story is all about the father. Actually, the word prodigal in the text is only mentioned one time. And the word father is actually mentioned 20 times in only 12 verses. So, this is what I want you to get across. Before we read this, before we dive into any of this, this story is about the father. The word prodigal in English actually means reckless or wasteful. Anybody ever had a season in your life where you just felt like it was reckless and wasteful and then you look back on two, three years of your life and you're like, man, what was I doing with my life? That's simply what that word means. But this truly is a story about a reckless father's love for his one and only son. So let me give you a brief overview before we read it. This is what happens. The dad has all this money that he, sent to, that he set aside for his son. So his younger son comes up to the father and says, Hey, listen, everything that you've set aside for me, I want it now. I want it now. I don't want to wait. You know what? I don't feel like serving in your household anymore. But in reality, you know what? I don't care about our relationship. God, Dad, I don't care about you. All I want is your stuff. Just give me your stuff. How many of you know, let's just put it in, how many of you guys are parents in here? Any parents in here? How many of you know if your child came to you and said, hey, listen, dad, mom, I don't care about you. I just want your money so I can go have some fun. Can you give me what's owed to me? 
How many of you, that would just utterly crush your world? Right? To know that your son or your daughter doesn't care about you. They don't value a relationship with you. All they want is your stuff. So turn with me. We're in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 12. And we pick it up here. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Here it is. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So ultimately, Jesus is giving us a picture of what sin is really like. Something that all of us in here have participated in. Because in reality, what Jesus is trying to show him, many times we don't want the Father, we just want his stuff. We don't really want Jesus' unconditional love. We don't really want his rules. We really don't want anything or a part of him. We just want what he has to offer him. It's kind of like a 911 phone call. God, I don't want to serve you. I don't want to love you, but get me out of this situation. That's basically what's going on. Most of us want to be in control. Most of us want to be the center of our universe. But the problem is you can't be God when God is around. You can't be God when God is around. So what happens? Instead of us um, taking on this and instead of us trying to be God, we just ignore him. Many of us just run away because we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do with this unconditional love, this thing called grace that is so amazing that we hear people talk about in church. And we hear many people preach about it. This, uh, this amazing grace. And sometimes we don't know what to do with it. So we just run away. So now comes the first surprise in this story, Luke 15, verses 13. And he says this, and he divided his property between them. Let's stop there. So here's what happens. The son is saying, hey, listen, Dad, I don't care about you. I don't care about the relationship. I don't care about the history that we have together. I just want your stuff. And then here's the most interesting part of the story. The father gives him exactly what he wants. He gives him exactly what he wants. Wants. He gives them the land, he gives them the property, he gives them the money. What's interesting about this, actually in the book of Leviticus, it says that if you have a rebellious son like this, that by law, by Jewish custom, you can kill him. You can kill this son. Another custom was if a Jewish boy rejected his father or rejected his family, what they would do is they would drag this boy out into the street and they would gather the entire town. So it'd be like, hey, listen, it'd be like me taking my first son, Eli, who's sitting on the front row here, and I say, hey, Eli, listen, you've rejected me, you've rejected your mom and, and, and all of us, so you know what? I'm going to call together the entire city of Crowley. And we're going to meet right down here at the courthouse, and everybody's going to circle around. And what they would do is they would grab this pot, and they'd have this mallet, and they would hit the pot. And as soon as they hit the pot, they would look at everybody in the town, and they said, no matter what you do, everybody reject this boy right here. Don't help him. Don't feed him. Don't give him anything. He is totally banned from our community, totally banned from our family. So the first point that I want to make, I want to make six of them. Number one that we find in this text, God loves you even when you reject him and break his heart. God loves you even when you reject him and break his heart. God loves you before you even decided to repent. God loves you before you even decided to confess your sins or say sorry. The truth is he's never stopped loving. Maybe you're reckless, maybe you 
feel like that word prodigal defines your own life, but I want to tell you this morning that there is absolutely nothing that you can do or take part of that is going to make your father love you any less. He's never stopped loving you, even when you reject him and even when you break his heart. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 13. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. This is exactly what it'd be like. It's exactly what's going on right now in our economy. It'd be like you get these huge paychecks, and you're working for an oil company, and you build this life for yourself, and all of a sudden everybody starts losing their jobs. Sound familiar? This is what's happening. He has all this money, and then a severe famine hits the land, and everything that he has begins to go to waste. And it says this, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Point number two that we pull from this. God loves you even as you wander in the darkness. God loves you even as you wander in the darkness, even as you feel like life has gone so low and all the decisions and everything that you've done and all the despair, God still loves you. The truth is, in this story, what I find is the prodigal's life actually started out great on his own. It started out awesome, right? He went to Vegas. He went to the Rice Palace. Not really. There's nothing for you over there. He was away from the Father. He was away from the rules. You ever, like, leave Louisiana where you're not around anybody and you go to a different state and you don't know, but know anybody? And there's this kind of sense of you of, like, I can just act a fool because nobody knows me. Nobody knows me, right? That's why when people go to Vegas, they say what happens in Vegas, what? Stays in Vegas. Why? Because nobody knows you. You look at a person, they may be looking at you, and what is this crazy fool doing? You're like, I don't know you, and I'm never going to see you again, so I don't care. Sin is fun. But eventually the money was gone, the friends were gone, and the loneliness set in, and the begging, and the despair. And the journey ends with him taking one of the lowest jobs, feeding pigs, which were considered unclean animals in his culture. The Jewish people did not touch pork. They did not eat pigs. And he's so hungry that he craves the filthy slop that they eat. This should be a clear picture of what sin really does. It usually starts great. You know what bothers me? And many pastors and Christians will tell you this is they're like, listen, I know you're in your sin and it's so miserable right now and you just need Jesus. And some people, when they hear that, they're like, to be honest with you, like, I'm not miserable. To be honest with you, I'm having fun in my sin. And if you're not, then you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> sin is fun. It's great. The Bible even said this, that you can find much pleasure in it, but then comes the catch for a season. Sin is fun for a season, 
So maybe you're in here right now and you hear me saying, hey, sin, one day is going to catch up with you. One day the despair and one day the loneliness and the depression is going to set in. You're going, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm living life. I'm having fun. I'm enjoying myself. You don't see it now. But the day's coming. When that joy and that fun that you found and all those things will one day leave you and friends begin to desert you because nobody said, like, it's cool to smoke weed and all those things when you're young, right? Like, you're cool. At 45 years old, what are you? You're a drug addict. It's not cool anymore. Right? It's just not cool. It's not cool when your, your wife starts leaving you. It's not cool when your kids go, where's dad? It's not cool anymore. Right? So it's fun for a season, but it eventually wears off. I heard this a long time ago, and I thought it was very wise words. The problem with sin is this. It keeps you longer than you ever want to stay, and it makes you do things that you never said you would do. It keeps you longer than you ever want to stay, and it makes you do things that you said you would never do. That you would never do. Maybe this morning you're in the pigsty of broken relationships. Maybe you've lost your family. Maybe your husband's walked out on you. Maybe your kids have been taken away from you. Maybe your wife has left you. Maybe you're in debt and you don't know what to do. It seems that the path you chose promised so much but delivered so little. Many of us in here are fighting with depression and darkness and despair. Many of us in here find ourselves in that pigsty. Find ourselves looking down and going, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? But contrary to what you believe, God loves you, get this, at your darkest. He loves you at your darkest. Think of this story watching a split screen TV. Think of the story of the prodigal son watching a split screen TV. On one side is the prodigal son in all of his recklessness. And all of his despair and all of his squandering all his money and sleeping with prostitutes and doing all those things. And then on the other side of the screen is a father desperately wanting his son to come home. Instead of being disgusted with what his son's doing, he's begging and longing and hoping and waiting and pleading for his son just to come home. Because if he can come home, then he can be restored. See, there's two things going on. When you're at your worst, when you're at your darkest hour, your darkest moment, God is relentlessly pursuing you because he wants you so much. Luke 15, 7, as we continue reading. But when he came to himself, you ever had that happen? You're like, what? Wait, how in the world did I wake up in the rice palace at 2 a.m. in the morning? What is going on? This is what happens. He came to himself. He said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Number three, God loves you even as he's bringing you back. So in this story, it might seem like the, the son chose to come back to the father, but in actuality, the father is the one that is drawing and pulling the son back. Yes, the son wake up and go, hey, i got to make a choice to get out of where I'm at. He did. But there was this draw and this pull to go, wait a minute, I had it way better when I was at home. The love of the father began to overwhelm him and overtake him and overcome him, and he was drawn and pulled to go back 
to the Father. Jesus leaves the 99 to find the one, right? Quick example, how many of you guys have ever done the most frustrating thing in the world? You lost your car keys. <clears throat> you lost your car keys. Like, I am the worst person to set something down. I, I never, like, I know many of you in here, you're really organized, and that's great. You have, like, this one little niche place in your house where, like, this is my wallet. This is where my cell phone goes. This is where, I don't have that. I'm like, I get home, I'm like, oh, there's the table. There goes my wallet. There, and I'm walking back, here's the kid's sofa. There goes my phone. Like, so I wake up sometimes in the morning, and I'm like, where are my car keys? And the thing that you notice when you lose your car keys, what are you doing? You usually got to be at work at 10 o'clock, and you slept till 9.50, and you're hurrying up, and you realize you can't find your car keys, and it's 9.55. What do you do? You rip your house apart. Right? You're like throwing sofa cushions. You're taking toddlers and throwing them across the room. Like, where'd you put my car keys? You're just upset. You rip up anything you possibly can to find your car keys because you are determined, I am not walking to work. I'm driving that car. Right? You want to find those car keys. You're not content with walking to work. You'll do whatever it takes to rip your house apart, to find those keys. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He loves us so much that he will draw us back at any cost necessary. Some of you may ask yourself right now, listen, I don't understand why I'm so in so much pain, or I'm hurting, or these, all these things are going on. Sometimes God allows things to happen because all he's doing is to trying to go just with the prodigal son did. And he came to himself. And he realized, oh, wait, I can't do this on my own. I've tried long enough, and it seems like every time I try on my own, it doesn't work. God loves us as he draws us back. Luke 15, reading it now, starting in verse 18. So he says this, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I, listen to this, this is powerful right here, because we're going to make a point in a second. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But, I love this part, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. Now many of us in here have lost our car keys, but imagine losing a child. And many of us in here have. Imagine losing a child. A few months ago, my wife was out with some of the kids, and I had the task of watching Peter. I lost Peter in my own home. In my own home. Because, listen, I, I'll just be real, real with you. Like, you know when you, like, when women go to the bathroom at home, they go really quickly. Like, when men go into the bathroom, they're grabbing, grabbing magazines, phones, all this stuff. It's like... This is like your sanctuary for like an hour. My wife, what are you doing in there? I'm not doing anything. I'm just enjoying the peace and quiet. <laughs> so I'm in the bathroom and I get out and I'm like, man, it's awfully quiet in here. Where's Peter? So I'm like, Peter! I'm walking around. I'm going up and down my hallway. Like five minutes goes by and I can't find Peter. Do I tell my wife any of this? No. <laughs> I'm searching all over. I'm like, Peter! Peter! 
And what happens as a parent, like if you've ever lost a child, what happens? Your heart goes to your stomach, right? You're thinking of all the worst things possible, like he choked on something, and he threw up, and he suffocated, and something happened, and he, he, he's one years old, he can't open the door, but somehow he did. He was able to swing out, and like something happened. Long story short, about 10 minutes later, I'm searching all over. I'm like pulling things up. I'm on the verge, about to call Claire, which is not going to happen. I would have to search for like an hour before that happened. And I hear, ah! And we have those rollaway closets. And I open the closet, and he was in the closet eating crayons with a blanket over it. Like, are you serious? What happens in that moment? Like, I can breathe for a second, right? I can breathe for a second, like, oh my gosh, okay, I found my son, he's not dead, he's okay. Now, in that moment, I, have, I can have two reactions. Son, what are you doing? Who does that? Who sits in the closet and eats crayons and puts a blanket over them? Who does that? Or I can do what? I can grab him, embrace him. And just be glad that he is found. This is the desperation that God feels when one of us are lost. When one of us are lost, he is willing to do whatever he has to do to get you to come home. The Father will seek you. No matter how dark your life has become, the Father will seek you despite your history. The Father will seek you no matter what you have done. The Apostle John explains that we come to the Father as he draws us in. Many of us may not want to hear this, but it's true. The Father arranges the circumstances of our life to draw us to himself. Quick story, my, my, fourth, my third brother, Matt, who lives in Nashville, in high school, he was uh, far away from God, and he's driving on a road one day. You guys remember when drifting was popular? He's coming around this curve, and he's drifting, okay, in like some 1996 Honda hatchback piece of junk, okay? He's drifting around this corner, loses control, goes into a ditch where there's this, uh, the bayou is, and he goes straight down, and a pole comes through his window and misses his head by like two inches, he gets out of the car, he's sobbing, he's breaking down, and literally a few days later, his life is completely different. And many of us may not have traumatic experiences like that, where it was his wake-up moment for him, like, oh my gosh, I almost died. Some of us may be in different places. Maybe you're in a constant state of pain and sorrow and hurt. A constant state of, like, I don't know why my life is like this. Many times God allows those things to happen so that you can just go, God, I give up, I surrender. I'll, do, I'll come home. I'll do whatever you need me to do. That was awesome. <laughs> but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. How do I recover from that? Here's the thing. You may feel unworthy or extremely guilty, but the Father is recklessly pursuing you, no matter what you've done. See, that word prodigal actually applies more to the Father than it does the Son. The definition of it, actually. Reckless. The Father will recklessly pursue you. No matter what He has to do. 
to draw you home. Point number four. God loves you as he extends radical grace, and this is the best part, and makes all things new. So the father gives his son three gifts. Maybe you've heard this before. He puts, the ro- he puts a robe on him, and this symbolizes, hey, you belong to me. Then he gives him a ring. This is a symbol of authority. He says, the authority that I have, now I transfer it to you. And then he gives him sandals, which are a sign of wealth, because back in the day, servants did not wear sandals. Only sons wore sandals. And here's the interesting part. Remember, I pointed this out earlier. The son, when he comes back home, he tells his father, he said, Father, I don't deserve to be a son. Just make me a servant. The son has requested the status of a servant, and he's been denied. He's been restored as a son. Just like that. Just by simply making the decision to come home. He doesn't have to be a servant. What does his dad do? He puts the robe, he puts the ring, he puts the sandals. Only sons wear sandals. See, our natural reaction when we know we've sinned against God is to try to work it off. Like, God, I've done this. I've failed you. I need to, I need to pray 20,000 times for you to actually forgive me. I need to do more good deeds. I need to be a better person so that God can actually forgive me. And God says, denied. Denied. You can't know God in that way. You can't know God by simply working to be a better person. You have to know God on the basis of grace because that is all that the Father extends to the Son. Because in the story, get this, where's the shame from what the son did? Did the father shame him? Son, I can't believe you took all my money and squandered it and did all this. What are you thinking? Did he do that? No, it's gone. Where's the punishment? There's not a drop of it. Who pays for the son's reckless living? Not the son. The father absorbs it. He takes it. Instead of shame and beating and humiliation, there are robes and honors and parties. There is grace. Like, when you decide to come home, for some of you that are out there running and thinking that your life is great how it is, or maybe some of you are out there and running and your life is miserable, the moment that you decide to come home is the moment that God extends grace to you. No more, no less. So now let me explain why this whole story is really about Jesus' death and resurrection. See, the cross was Jesus running after us, taking upon himself our shame. He was beaten, he was spit upon, he was whipped, he was nailed in his hands. You study history, they say it was so painful to be crucified that men would vomit and urinate all over themselves. The Romans would take you, strip you of your clothes, and then they would crucify you in a public place like the mall or Walmart so everybody could see you. This was Jesus bearing our shame, our guilt, our sin. Do we really understand what the cross is? It's Jesus taking the place for your rebellion and wayward, reckless living. Let's keep reading in 21. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, immediately he denies the son. He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us celebrate. For this was my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. See, the cross for many of us in our culture is just simply a decoration. It's a symbol of their faith. You wear a cross around your neck like, hey, I'm a Christian. But if you really believe in who Jesus says he is, that he is God and that he has risen from the grave, the cross is everything. It's not a decoration, it's a declaration. It's a declaration that though you and I deserve wrath, though you and I deserve punishment, though you and I deserve Condemnation, condemnation. Jesus took it all and offers us restored intimacy with the Father. The cross and the resurrection is Jesus making all things new. Is Jesus taking your history, your shame, your past and saying, no more. Like when Jesus' last words, when he died on the cross and he said, it is finished. You know what that means? It means that like, Everything that you do, all of your past, all of your history, all your guilt and your shame, it is forgiven once and for all. No sin is too wicked, no recklessness too severe, no shame too great, no pigsty too filthy. If the cross and resurrection are true, your history does not have to be determined, and your identity does not have to be found. Listen, what you did five years ago, what you did yesterday does not define who you are. Can I tell you something, Christian? One bad day does not define your Christianity and your relationship with Jesus. Like so many of us live like that. So many of us live like, man, I just had a bad day, I had a bad week, I had this, and it just, man... Jesus must, he's, he's angry at me now. One bad day does not define you in your relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you a question. If you're a parent in here, do you ever have days when you snap on your kids? Does that make you a bad parent? No. No, it makes you good parents when you go back and you say, hey, son, I'm sorry. Dad blew it. I messed up. So listen, when you have those bad days, what do you do? How do you know that you're saved? You go back to the Father and say, God, I messed it up. Forgive me. And you receive his grace that he's given to us in the cross and the resurrection. Your future is not defined by your past mistakes, but by the promises that God makes to us. If the cross and the resurrection are true, there is nothing you could do that would make God love you any more. Nothing you have done that makes you love him any less. Maybe you've heard this acronym before. It's an acronym for grace. But it means God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. He absorbed your sin, your punishment. He took it on so that you could experience grace. Let's keep reading. Because we all know that there's another part to this story. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, What is with these things, and what does it all mean? 
And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And he said to him, Son, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Point number five. God loves you when you're too proud to receive his grace. God loves you when you're too proud to receive his grace. Because here's the thing, the brother on the surface looks good, right? He didn't go out and blow the father's money. He didn't go out and sleep with prostitutes. He didn't go out and, and, and squander everything. He's good, he's upright, but there's a subtle detail in this passage. He's outside of the house. Jesus has a very specific person in mind in telling this story. The religious person. The person who's lived a good life and thinks that God owes them something. God, I've served you for 10, 20, 15, 30 years. But the truth is, the brother has never experienced the grace of God. The brother has never experienced a true relationship with Jesus because rules and regulations do not declare that you know Jesus. Just because you live a moral, upright life. There's tons of what we would call good people in this world. And there's going to be a ton of good people in hell. He may be near to the house of the Father, but he does not have the heart of the Father. Do you ever notice that religious people can be some of the most unloving people on the planet? Mm -hmm. They can be the most judgmental people on the planet. Can I just do this real quick? You know what bothers me about religious people? Is they're so quick to stand up for some things that in reality just don't matter. Like, hey man, don't curse around me. Don't curse around me. And yet ignore the single mom who is struggling and can't pay her bills. What makes any sense about that? Nothing. Jesus came to offer grace. Last time I checked in scriptures, Jesus is hanging with prostitutes and sitting in bars talking with people. But if many of us Christians were in here today, you'd be like, oh my God, you were unclean, you were unholy. God would never approve of that. When God was doing the very same thing, he came to love the lost and that's what he's after. As a church, that's what we're after. We don't want to be a bunch, a group of religious people that say, hey, we've got it all figured out. The truth is, I stand on this stage and I have very little figured out. The truth is, I need God's grace just as much as you do. The truth that many of you don't know is when my dad asked Claire and I to start this church, my first reaction was almost no. Not because I didn't feel called to it, but because I know as soon as I step on the stage that there is this morality sensor that kicks in in people's minds. Is you've got to live this perfect life. The more and more that I read scripture, the more and more that I find, you don't have to be perfect at all. 
thing that God is looking for is you to recognize your weakness and come to Him in that. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for you to let down the pride. He's looking for you to say, you know what, I don't have it all together. Because Paul actually says, in your weakness, God is made strong. He's looking for Christians to say, you know what, I don't have it figured out, and this is why I need others, and this is why I need people. Religious people clean the outside without ever failing. They never clean the inside of their heart. A funny example of this is I have my two oldest, Eli and Isaac, every night take a bath. And um, they have these towels. We have these towels in our house. We have green towels and we have brown towels. Well, neither of them like the brown towels because they say it looks like poo. <laughs> and so they never, every time they get out of the bath, it is a huge fight. And Isaac is usually the first one to get out of the bath and he'll grab the green towel. And Eli is always left with the poo brown towel. So there's always some argument that breaks place. I don't want the poo towel! In my mind, I'm just like, it's a towel, son. It does not matter. It dries you. It gets the purpose done. So one night, I see it as a teaching opportunity. I'm like, all right, hopefully Eli's old enough to understand this. I'm like, Eli, come see. I know Isaac always gets out first. But you know what Jesus says about people that always want to be first here on earth? He says, the first shall be last. The first shall be last. And so the next night I hear them in the bath, and Isaac, of course, jumps out of the town. I hear Eli yell at the top of his lungs, you're going to be last in heaven! <laughs> Isn't that what religious people do, though? They never take it and allow it to sink in their heart. They never allow God to take their world and flip it upside down. They just spew out what somebody else said, and they say, hey, this is good, so I'll say this too. Hey, this makes me look good, so I'll do this too. But in reality, it's never changed their heart. There's no compassion to serve and love the poor. There's no compassion to serve and love the church. There's no compassion for the lost and dying person going to hell. They just want to be good. They just want to look right. But the truth is, God wants to change your heart. And that can't happen by you resolving to just be a better person. But God loves you when you're too proud to receive his grace. God loves the wayward sinner, but he also loves the religious person. But also, according to Jesus, two people miss the gospel. Wayward sinners and religious people. Which leads me to our last point. Number six, you can choose to stay out of God's love forever. Or you can embrace it. You can choose to stay out of God's love forever, or you can embrace it. Because the truth is about this story is it ends abruptly. There is no ending. It just ends without any resolve. Like if he was to be, if Jesus was to be a best-selling author with this, he wouldn't make it that far. There is no resolve. And I believe that there's no resolve because this story is an invitation. Saying, hey, listen, you can be like the prodigal son, you can be like the religious person, but in the end, you have to choose to be with the Father. 
in the end, you have to embrace his love. You have to want to change. So here's my question. Have you ever had the very simple experience of receiving Christ into your life? And I word that carefully. The very simple experience of receiving Christ in your life. And some of you in here maybe go, well, I'm, I'm religious. I believe in God. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about do you believe in God. I'm talking about, do you know God and has he changed your wants and your desires? Have you turned from darkness to light? Have you embraced the Father? And for some of you, maybe you're in here and you say, hey, listen, honestly, I want, I want to. I want to make that decision to follow Jesus for the first time. But I'm scared because I just think all Christians are weird. They're just weird. Can, can I give you a little something? Those people were weird before they got saved. And now they're just weird saved people. <laughs> and God loves weird saved people. But don't let those, the, what you see as, as those people is like, man, if that's Christianity, I don't want nothing a part of it. And let me, every family has the wackos. Okay? Every person has that one person in their family. You're like, man, if they just didn't show up, like this would be awesome. Right? If they didn't show up, like, we would just have a great time. And then they show up, you're like, oh, great. Oh, great. Don't let that deter you. Don't let that deter you. So here's what I want to offer to you as we close this service. In a moment, if our ushers want to get ready, we're going to get ready to receive communion for the first time here. But here's what I want you to understand. Many of you walked in here this morning looking for someone. And listen, you may have been hurt by church, but Jesus said, he didn't ever say, follow my people or my church. He said, follow me. Listen, people are flawed, and who runs the institutions of the church? People. So they're going to hurt you. It's just going to happen. You may be in here and you're like, man, I love this church. It's just so loving. And, 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 and Listen, there is going to be an opportunity for you to be hurt here because we are just imperfect people that make mistakes. So maybe you've come from that background or that history and you say, I want to, um, I want to surrender. I want to submit. But I've been hurt. There's been a past that has just scarred me and wounded me. The truth is Jesus has never done that to you because he's recklessly pursued you. He's sought after you in your darkest, in your moments of despair. He's longing for you to come home. He wants you to be a part of family. Listen, I would encourage you, if you don't have a church this morning, welcome home. Welcome home. Listen, you cannot do it on your own. There is absolutely no way, as we, as we broke away just for a, a week, we've been in a series in Ecclesiastes studying that you can have everything and still have nothing if you don't have Jesus. So, so here's the truth. And in that truth, we have learned that two people are better than one. 
Two people are better than one. You need people to help you walk through this process. You need to be a part of a church. You need to be a part of a life group, which I'll talk about in a second. Listen, we're going to do something real quick in here. Can every, just every head bowed, every eye closed? I don't want to make it awkward for anybody. But if you're in here this morning and you're saying, hey, listen, Pastor Zach, everything you said just resonates with me. I feel like God is just tugging on my heart. I feel this weight on my back. I feel this burden. And I just want to let it go. I want to make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up real quick? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Many people in here. And I want you to do this. I'm going to pray. And I want you to just settle in your heart these words. You can pray this under your breath or you can pray this out loud if you would want. How, how about this? How about we all just pray this? Father God, I come to you today broken, hurting, but God, I know that you are Lord and I want to make you the Lord of my life. Forgive me for my sins my shame, my guilt. God, thank you for your cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that you've made a way for me. In Jesus' name.